You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. A major media shakeup. CNN CEO Chris Licht out after barely a year on the job and a year marked by multiple controversies and perceived missteps. Brian Stelter lived part of it. He's right here to react alongside our very own Alex Sherman for more on what it means for the media landscape and the similarities to the recent CEO saga over at Disney. Plus, Jeffrey Gunlock sees a higher chance of a recession, Goldman forecasting the opposite, Jamie Dimon says the economy is still fine, and Janet Yellen today telling CNBC she sees more bank consolidation ahead. Why is it so hard to see clearly what shape the economy is in? We'll debate. And some of the retail names looking a lot like the home builders a year ago based on one metric. So could they, too, be poised for a big rally? We'll dig into that ahead. First, let's get a quick check on the markets with the Nasdaq hitting a new 52-week intraday high earlier in the session, although we're mixed to lower now. The Dow clinging on to a 38-point gain. S&P's down about 13 to 42.70. Energy, by far the top-performing sector today. WTI crude up nearly 2%, around 73 a barrel, a little under that right now. Marathon, APA, and Halliburton are some of the biggest gainers. Let's get now to the big shakeup in the media world today. CNN CEO Chris Licht stepping down just days after The Atlantic published a pretty brutal 15,000-word profile about his year-long tenure at the helm. Parent company Warner Brothers Discovery shares are up 7% after this news. So they had some Amazon headlines a little while ago as well. CNN, uh, CNBC's parent company and Fox also higher uh, 1.5% to 3% today. Let's go back and remember how we got here. Back in February 2022, less than two months after primetime host Chris Cuomo was fired, CNN President Jeff Zucker resigned over a personal relationship with another executive. Licht was his handpicked successor a few weeks later by new CEO David Zaslav as Discovery was merging with Warner Media. Even before officially taking the helm, Licht was tasked with announcing the closure of CNN Plus less than a month after its launch. About 250 people lost their jobs as a result, according to our Alex Sherman. Licht officially became chairman and CEO of CNN last May. Then another round of layoffs came back in December as part of a bigger restructuring plan. Licht wanted to broaden CNN's appeal, especially to political conservatives, but then had another headache when morning show host Don Lemon, whom Licht had installed to that position, was fired after his comments about presidential candidate Nikki Haley. Just a few weeks later, CNN hit another speed bump after hosting former President Donald Trump in a widely criticized town hall. And that brings us to last week when the Atlantic piece Inside the Meltdown at CNN came out. Reporter Tim Alberta spent months talking to Licht, and his resulting piece quickly led to Licht's departure today. CNN had just announced a new COO, also close to David Zaslav, just 24 hours before that piece came out. Joining me now to discuss what's next, both for Licht and the network, Brian Stelter is Vanity Fair special correspondent and former CNN anchor, and CNBC.com media reporter Alex Sherman. They're both with me now. Welcome to both of you. Thanks. Brian, we should have put you on that timeline because, um. you know, if only there was a national weekly media show to talk about all the drama this week. <laughs> it, what is going through your head right now? Uh, there's a lot of sadness, and among CNN staffers, a lot of relief. You know, the last year has been really tumultuous, and I've had more than one anchor say to me today, if we could just get the last year of our lives back, because there's been so much drama, not on camera, but off camera, and it distracts from the news. Right. So I guess the larger question is how much damage has been done to the CNN brand 
as a result of this kind of ill-conceived turnaround plan? Well, I've had executives there in the last couple of days say to me, you know, viewers are confused. Viewers don't know what we stand for or who we are anymore. But I believe that is pretty quickly repairable. Uh, whenever there's a very bad event in the world or a very good event in the world, CNN's ratings do spike. Audiences do come back, whether it's a space launch or, or something catastrophic. You know, there are reasons to come to CNN several times a year. And the next time one of those events happens, I believe the audience will come back. But it is going to be in rebuilding mode. And David Zaslov today made very clear to the staff, it's going to take months to find a new permanent leader of CNN. Well, that big event, Alex, that's coming up is 2024 presidential the election. election. Yeah. CNN was supposed to be hitting its stride and now has to face, you know, four interim uh, heads running it, then the next successor. And let's talk about David Zaslav's role in this. You know, he picked Licht. The articles made it sound like there wasn't much of a process uh, that backfired. And now there's a lot riding on him getting it right this time. So WBD shares are up right now about 7%, but how much hangs on his next moves? Yeah, I think there was certainly a perception with Chris, um, and you can, you know, depending on who you ask, I think it, it sort of ranges in reality, but I think it's fair to say that Chris took his marching orders from David Zasloff, who may be watching this right now, uh, and, and to some degree, John Malone, the board member there, who has sure. been on our air talking about how he felt like CNN should be more of sort of an old-style, you know, early 1990s CNN, where it was down the middle, just the news, just the facts. He made a comment about, you know, we need to bring in sort of journalists again, which I think rubbed a lot of people at CNN the wrong way, because there are, of course, hundreds and thousands of journalists there, um, and they have been doing journalism for the past few years. The question now is, if you're going to find a new leader, do you task that new leader with a new vision for mm. CNN, or do you just keep kind of repeating the same things you've been saying about CNN? Like, well, it used to be an advocacy network, and now we want to make it sort of this down the middle. We want to bring in more Republicans. We want both sides. These are the types of things David Zaslav has talked about from CNN. But I don't know if that's enough of a vision to get everyone there on board with the mission. Mm, we, a lot of us, when we were at CNN in the Trump years, felt we were advocating for the truth, advocating for reality. Others felt that was left-leaning. But the point is, CNN was evolving because of the political environment. And you, I don't think there's a way to evolving turn... anyhow before Chris Licht Before Licht was arriving, Seth. yes. Interesting. Uh, you know, I, I think it is right that there's a desire to have this much more calm, uh, less controversial political environment that CNN can then cover. But we don't live in that world. In fact, if anything, it's only going to get more chaotic with Donald Trump as the leading contender for the GOP nomination. I had an anchor today say to me, you know, if you try to be all things all people, you're not anything to anybody. And that's the CNN challenge. It always has been for 40 years to try to just be the plain vanilla news. Well, in an environment where people don't want just plain vanilla news. One of the things that clearly went wrong for Chris Licht was the Donald Trump town hall. Sure. Uh, where, where there's, you know, he, he's up there, he's talking, there's hundreds of his screaming fans that are sort of egging him on. And one of the major challenges is going to continue to be how do we cover Donald Trump on CNN? What is the right. right way to do that? I don't believe that question has been totally answered. I think what Chris Licht wanted to do was to tone down the hysteria. Uh, for, having gone through four years of the Donald Trump presidency, I think he saw what CNN had done mm -hmm. as, as turning the knob to 11 at all times. And remember, one of the first things he did when he stepped into his role was well, you got to get rid of the breaking news all the time, right? We can't live in this sort of heightened world. Which, by the world. way, we all loved. You know, everybody <laughs> in cable news exploits the breaking news. Of course. Banner. We Good all for say it too much. Yeah. There were a lot of staffers who supported Lick's vision, who wanted to be on the journey with him. They felt like they didn't understand what he wanted to do, though. And then when he disparaged the network in the interview with The Atlantic, it was too far gone. But there needs to be more of a vision than just you got to take down the breaking news. We got to turn oh. down the knob here. Part mm. of, part of, again, one of the big things he did when he first stepped in the role was kill.
kill off CNN Plus. And that was for better or worse. And you could certainly make an argument that that was sort of a half-baked product and shouldn't have been launched when it had. And maybe it was a product of the merger happening and trying to rush it out before Discovery took over. But at least it was a North Star for CNN. It was something mm-hmm. where they said, OK, the linear world is, is hemorrhaging millions of subscribers every year. More and more people cancel cable. So let's make this new thing. And yeah, the ratings are going to be lower. We already know that. But at least we can tell investors, we can tell our employees, look, we're building a new subscription business. It's going to take time, but that's where we're going. When they killed that off, there was no there there anymore. So Mm. let's talk about Warner Brothers Discovery as a company. Shares are up 7% today. Some of the other media stocks are as well. Is that because there's a sense that this actually opens up the likelihood of another deal happening? There's been always talk about WBD and for instance, uh, even a, a, an NBC Universal, some of the other media assets out there, it's kind of small as it is. It's a little bit of an orphan. It doesn't have the scale of other companies. Does this create a, a necessity almost for them to do something strategic? I'm not sure that this plays any role into a larger deal between Warner Brothers Discovery and another media company, which potentially faces regulatory hurdles and, frankly, wouldn't be centered around CNN, which is a fairly small percentage of the entire company. What it might, what investors may be thinking today, though, is, does this increase the likelihood of a sale of CNN? Does maybe Warner Brothers Discovery say, you know what, we feel like maybe this asset's not the best fit here? I, it, certainly from everything I've been told privately before this, that has not been part of the plan. But Chris Licht was very much a part of that vision. So potentially that may be one of the reasons you're seeing the stock bump today. If they can get a $8 billion price tag for CNN. Maybe it does make sense. And full disclosure, I do own Warner Bros. Discovery shares. I'm a big booster of the company, even though I'm no longer there. But when I look at this, I think this is such a headache for Zaslav. It's been a headache for months and months and months. He's had to be more involved with CNN than he may want to be involved. And that does raise this sale, this sale question. If the, the CNN was worth, what, maybe $10 billion in 2020, is it worth even $8 billion now? Because uh, the wild card, I think, Kelly, would be the 2024 election could turn all of this around. You mean right? there could be a, Yeah, there could be a story in one year about a CNN that's more muscular, stronger than ever before, firing all cylinders. An election does wonders for cable news. We've seen that before. Sure, although they're now going to be in the midst of two transitions, first to this interim leadership team and then to presumably the new leadership team. And I guess the final question is about not David Zaslav's credibility because he's had an incredible career, Brian, but... Um, there's a lot riding on this next decision of his, who to install as the leadership, what to do with CNN, to Alex's point, if something more strategic needs to be done. This is going to be probably the main focus he's, he's going to have at a time when there's so much up in the air. Uh, and he's dispatched COO David Levy, one of his you know, most trusted aides, to manage the business of CNN, the commercial part, the promotional, the operations. That's a very savvy move. Levy has already helped stabilize the place in the past few days. Staffers feel good about Levy being there, but they are concerned about the vision question, and they are concerned about corporate interference. Historically, CNN has had ownerships that was hands-off. AT&T, whatever you say about AT&T, they were very hands-off with CNN at a a very challenging time. I think staffers want to know that they are the ones assigning the news and not corporate and not the corporation. A- amongst a couple of other leadership lessons you might draw from this, Alex, is you know when you when you read Lick's comments and almost obsession with not being Jeff Zucker, right? That's now come back to haunt him. So this idea that when you step into a role, it's not necessarily just hey, I'm not this, I'm not that. In and there were also some criticisms about him being a little removed from staff. You know, he had moved his office up to whatever floor. He had a chief of staff. You couldn't reach him directly, and so. This isn't just a story of this particular situation, but there's there's larger lessons to draw. Yeah, if you, if you come in and you say I'm not the other guy, but you've got hundreds or thousands of people at the organization that like the other guy, then you're setting yourself up for potential problems there. You need to win over people very quickly. And I, I think Chris had, had trouble winning over people very quickly. And then those people 
gravitate toward the old regime where they're like, well, you know, we like that better. And in the case of Disney, Brian, obviously Bob Iger came back or in the case of Starbucks, in the case right. of so many. Is there any chance that Zucker could come back or someone who represents Zucker to this company? I may be wrong. I've been wrong before, but I believe there's too much bad blood now between the old and new regimes. Uh, that said, you know, I've heard that Zaslav has compared the situation to Chapek. The Licht was being Chapek, meaning the people on the inside were now. rejecting the new leader. They wanted Iger back. This is a very similar case. All right, gentlemen, thank you both for being here today. We really appreciate it. Brian Stelter and Alex Sherman. Now to the latest on the AI front. While NVIDIA and big tech get all the headlines, there is another high stakes race going on in the travel industry. Seema Modi brings us those stories. Seema? Kelly, Google, once seen as a formidable competitor in the online travel space, now seen as a partner helping Priceline reveal a new travel product. CEO of Priceline Brett Keller says Google's cloud's generative AI tools will allow travelers to communicate with a chat bot and personalize hotel bookings as well as help agents speed up their ability to give actionable advice. It comes after Expedia revealed a new chat bot that CEO Peter Kern tells us will increase bookings. Airbnb also working on embedding AI with CEO Brian Chesky saying the technology will lower costs and level the playing field. Investors so far like the move. BTIG's Jake Fuller upgrading Expedia to buy while keeping booking and Airbnb at neutral for valuation reasons. Altimeter Capital's Brad Gerstner telling me earlier today AI will massively disrupt how we plan and book travel, whether current players around Google search optimization will also be the leaders in the age of personally intelligent assistance remains to be seen. He adds, Kelly, that these companies, they have a huge data advantage, but there is a risk as well that they go from top to bottom on the funnel. I think that's why they're all moving uh, on a fast pace. And Seema, one of, uh, Seema, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Seema Modi. One of the companies helping to make sure Priceline's running smoothly is PagerDuty, which counts the online travel site among the 25,000 organizations using its software. PagerDuty shares are down 16% in the past week after they reported better-than-expected first-quarter earnings but cut revenue guidance for the year. They also introduced three generative AI capabilities for Operations Cloud. Joining me here with more is Jen Tejada, the CEO of PagerDuty. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Nice to see you, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, I don't know how much you want to dig in on what's going on in the travel industry, but this is a major issue for them, how to be the leader coming out of the gate here with generative AI. Well, I think generative AI represents just an incredible opportunity, probably one of the biggest technological transitions in our time. Uh, it's incredibly exciting and also in some ways daunting. And I think the travel industry is a great example of a place where consumers already expect a perfect digital experience. They have an idea of what generative AI should be able to do for them, and they're very demanding. And so you see this race between these players looking to try and create great experiences using predictive information, using AI-assisted journeys to improve the way their consumers experience their platforms. We did, actually did a deal over the quarter with a large online travel platform mm. that's using generative AI across their platform to personalize the journey, both in planning and in the travel, the actual travel event, travel process. And what they found was that there's a big operational chasm to cross between the digital experience you build through apps and services for your customers and the way companies operate, which is based on traditional command control, almost militaristic operations mm. models. And what PagerDuty is doing is helping those companies cross the chasm using automation and a foundational data model to help their teams, their technology teams, their customer service teams, security teams, 
detect issues that happen on these platforms that are unexpected, unstructured, unpredictable, but high impact, and prevent them from impacting that digital God, experience. You know, it almost reminds me a little bit of Palantir. Is that an unfair comparison to make? I know it's, it's not, not dissimilar in terms of how you're using infrastructure technology and actually becoming virtual essential infrastructure for the customer. Right, and, and, and what your point is, and we all experience this working in corporations, is that the entire thing needs to kind of come alive. Um, how do you do that? Though <laughs> you can't. That sounds expensive. I don't know. We actually do it with 84 to 86 percent gross margins on a regular basis. But we're, well, it's probably good for you, but for the company, it, it still feels expensive to kind of reimagine and re-engineer these systems. For sure, except that generative AI, AI more broadly, and automation, which we're seeing an increased appetite for really helps people improve their own productivity. It helps companies drive efficiencies throughout just about every part of the value chain, whether it's where the consumer is engaging or how you're managing your technology or the pace that your developers can ship new code and new applications and new services to enhance that experience. We're all being asked to do more with less in this macro environment. And I think it's wet the appetite for employees and leaders alike to experiment with different types of automation that's in service of people doing more creative work, people doing higher value added. Absolutely, you've got the, the macro going for you, just like you said, trying to optimize. You've got AI you know, in various ways. So why are the shares still down about you know, less, more than half from their IPO price from 2019? Um, you, know, you could say, well, the market overall rates are higher and, the, and, I, and I get that, but how is it that people would be less excited about your prospects today than they were four years ago? I think there's, there's been a lot of volatility in the market since we've been trading as a public company. We've experienced a global pandemic. We've experienced the great resignation, you know, now a, a volatile macro environment. But also, unless you are a technical leader or a developer, it's actually hard to grasp the value that PagerDuty can actually create for customers. We deliver a very rapid payback period. I mean, we see customers... Um, be able to measure the value and the payback of, of PagerDuty within a couple of months, mm. and usually uh, over an 800% ROI in a matter of three years. That is a big return on investments that they make. But if, you've, if you're not a technical developer and you don't understand the material business impact that an incident can have if it goes unmanaged, you might not, uh, you might not estimate those, those kinds of Savings. I'm going to try to sneak in two more questions yeah. and they're going to scream at me. But they're, they're number one, how is enterprise demand holding up? Because we've gotten some mixed messages on yeah. that front. And number two, what is your workforce like in general? Are you still hiring? Are, you know, what are, what's going on with wages? So as a window into those two parts of the economy, I'm just curious. Enterprise demand is holding up. I mean, we're seeing enterprise loyalty, enterprise retention, and upper mid-market retention be very resilient. We're definitely seeing more cautious buying, longer sales cycles, smaller transactions. You ultimately get to the same value, but it takes longer and it might happen over a handful of engagements as opposed to just one. Uh, but we are essential infrastructure for our customers. It's a very sticky platform and we serve 70% of the Fortune 100 and over 40% of the global, global 500 or the Fortune 500. And so we are important and I think our, our leaders and our buyers understand that. I'd say that the employment environment is still very strong. We, everybody's still looking for great talent. And the fact that generative AI is going to create productivity and efficiency for developers doesn't mean less developers. It actually means developers are going to ship more interesting, more amazing products uh, and services. What's your so work we are from, hiring. You are hiring. Yes. Are you guys work from home? or We're hybrid. So hybrid. we have over half of our workforce is remote. We have people coming back into offices. I love being in person. Are you pulling uh, more people back or are you okay with it We don't have a mandate. We're suggesting that people uh, develop norms to collaborate on a regular basis. But we really want people to work 
the way that drives the most productivity and the most uh, fulfillment for them. And so far, that's worked well for us. A lot of people going, okay, need to get over to pager duty. (laughs) We're hiring. Don't like that commute. Jen, thank you so much for your time today. Nice appreciate it. Thank you. Jennifer Tejada with Pager Duty. Coming up, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning about the threat of higher rates to commercial real estate, while the OECD warns higher rates will continue to hurt the global economy. We'll discuss the fallout with just a week before the Fed's next meeting. Plus, remember when homebuilder multiples were in the low single digits? Well, now it's retail going through the ringer. We'll ask our guest if it's the next big bargain opportunity. And as we go to break, here's a quick glance at the markets. A seven-point gain for the Dow, 17-point drop for the S&P, 150-point drop for the Nasdaq today, while the Russells continue to be up one and a half percent. Go figure. The 10-year yield just below 380. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're just a week away from the Fed's next decision on interest rates. A pause seemingly in the cards, even as Jeffrey Gunlock warns economic indicators are looking full on recessionary. But Jamie Dimon is telling us yesterday the economy is still in good shape. And Janet Yellen earlier telling Squawk Box that more bank consolidation is likely ahead. So how should investors make sense of it all? Let's ask Paul Donovan, UBS Global Wealth Management's chief economist, and Andy Capron. He's on set with me. He's co-CIO of uh, CI Regent Atlantic Private Wealth. I think I got that right. Andy, I'll start with you. Welcome. And um, are higher rates really going to be with us for a long time? Or are we, you know, markets have now like priced out rate cuts entirely this year. Which, which I think is the right move, given some of the underlying economic fundamentals. I think the, the next meeting is likely to be perhaps a pause, but it might be more appropriate to call it a skip. Um, if you look at the economic developments over the course of the past few weeks, um, take the jobs report last week. That is not what a recession looks like. 335,000 jobs created in the, in, in the month is a pretty large number, pretty robust. I will just say February 08 was the first time we had negative payrolls and the recession was December 07. So it's, it doesn't need to go negative before the recession even. You know what I'm saying? It, it does not. But look at some of the things that are more predictive of the state of the economy, not just the labor force. Uh, the, the labor market tends to be a lagging indicator. Um, look at things like excess reserves. Uh, look, look at things like excess savings b- built up during the pandemic that is still getting put to work. Only about half of those have been worked off. I think the consumer is fundamentally healthy, but the consumer also feels kind of bad because yeah. you, you, you you ask a, a very generic question, do you feel good about the housing market? Do you feel like it's a good time to buy a house? Well, of course, it's not a good time no. to buy a house. Do you feel good it, about your own finances? You know. People are saying not really because yeah. of inflation. Paul, where is your head these days? Bullish, bearish? I, can't, I guess agnostic is not really a choice. So, I mean, I think that what we are seeing, as Andy's been saying, that there is some more resilience in the consumer. This is not your classic economic downturn. But there's also, I think, a lot more uncertainty out there. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the payrolls report itself is just less reliable as an indicator of what's actually going on in the economy. The JOLTS data is, is frankly, sheer guesswork by, by this stage. So we are struggling a little bit in, in the terms of the precision. And I think that's what's worried me about the Powell Fed, that Powell's had this sort of fanatical hike, hike, hike mentality and never stopped to pause to reflect on what's actually going on in the economy and how much certainty do we have about that. So I think we are seeing inflation come down. We are clearly seeing a moderation of demand on the part of consumers. Certain groups in society, certain sectors of the U.S. economy are clearly slowing down at a fairly marked pace. Uh, And I think that the, the... continual tightening um, really does have to come to an end. Can I ask you both about, so, and just to highlight that, Paul, you think the tightening needs to come to an end. Andy, you think they're going to probably keep going. Where do both of you think the profit margins or profits overall are heading? Andy, I'll start with you. I mean, do you still see them growing? Do you see profits growing, earnings per share 
corporate profit margins even from here? So profit margins declined a little bit last year, but they're still elevated relative to long-term history. I think what we saw last year is, frankly, uh, companies doing a pretty good job being able to pass through higher costs to consumers, sacrificing only a little bit of margin at the time. This is all a function of what I think is a very tight economy. And regardless of whether we're headed for a recession or a soft landing, as hard as, as it is to achieve one, I feel like profit margins over the next few years are likely to normalize, likely to come down a little bit. And that's not, but that's still supportive of a expanding economy? Because I hear that and I'm like, ha ha, that means, you know, that means bad things are, are coming. But, but profit, profit margins are a function of a lot of things. They're a function of how well can you put, push on costs to consumers. Consumers have capacity to spend. It's really their will right now. If, 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 you, if you look at the data, they have cash. They're just not really eager to spend it if you ask them very generic questions like, do you want to buy a house? Do you feel like it's a good time to buy a sure. car? It's hard to feel good about these decisions. Or even for consumer products, say, I don't want to pay 13% more than I did last year. Paul, real quickly, in a word, where do you think profits are headed? I think particularly towards the end of supply chains where we've had profit-led inflation, there's now going to be growing consumer resentment and political pressure, and that's going to be squeezing margins towards the end of supply chains because there have been excess profits being generated. All right, gentlemen, thank you. We'll leave it there. Paul Donovan, Andy Caprin, Dow's still up about 40 points. Still ahead, used car prices dropping for the third month in a row. And it's not for the reasons you might be thinking. We'll tell you why and look at some winners and losers in the auto retail space. The Exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've got a news alert out of the FAA and the air quality uh, in the New York area, Phil. Maybe all of the East Coast has gotten dramatically worse. Let's bring in Phil LeBeau with the story. And when you have a congested airspace, as you have in New York City with the three huge airports there, you're going to have to take steps. And that's what the FAA has done, announcing that it has paused flights from the upper Midwest and East Coast, just flights from those areas into LaGuardia. Uh, At this point, they've been paused. Unclear how long that pause will be in effect. Meanwhile, flights to Newark Liberty, those have been slowed down. So there's still flights there, but they have been slowed down. Here's the reason why. I mean, you look at the visibility and how much it has come down. And remember, they have already taken steps, the FAA has, to ease congestion by cutting back on the number of flights into and out of those three airports in New York City because of the limited number of air traffic controllers. So you add in another dimension with the smokiness and the lack of visibility or the diminished visibility. And that's why they're taking the steps to pause flights, at least for now, into LaGuardia. We've got to call into the FAA and the Port Authority to get a sense of when that pause might be lifted. But rough day if you are traveling into or out of the, uh, tri- uh, the one of those airports in the uh, New York City area, Kelly. How, how much might it affect air travel across the country, Phil? Well, there's a ripple effect, obviously, and at this point, the FAA is simply saying that it's pausing flights, not all flights, but pausing flights from the upper Midwest and the East Coast into LaGuardia. So you will see some impact there, but, you know, how much this ripples across the country remains to be seen. All right. Phil, we'll see you in a moment. Thank you, our Phil LeBeau reporting. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. All right, uh, Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, The GOP presidential field expanding yet again as candidates try to position themselves as an alternative to frontrunner former President Donald Trump. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum launched his campaign today, the same week as New Jersey Governor, former Governor, I should say, Chris Christie, and former Vice President Mike Pence officially kicked off their own campaigns. Prince Harry left the witness 
witness box today in a London courtroom saying he was suspicious of how Mirror Group newspapers obtained information for stories about him. He did not offer phone records or much other evidence to support claims that he was hacked. The prince fought back tears on the stand today and said he launched the case to protect his wife, Megan. He is among a group of high-profile people suing the newspaper group for damages. And the Vatican says the Pope's three-hour intestinal surgery was without complications. The 86-year-old pontiff under general anesthesia for the procedure. He's expected to remain in the hospital over the next few days as he recovers. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, thanks. Coming up, is retail a red flag or a bargain buy? The XRT is on pace for its best week since March, but still down nearly 20% from its recent high. And don't get me started on some of these individual PE numbers. Wait till you see them. We'll break it all down next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a look at some potential bargain opportunities in the market, specifically those with a super low P.E. ratio right now. Last year, we saw home builders in that position with crazy low multiples before rebounding. Fast forward to today and Pulte, D.R. Horton, Toll and KB Home are up solidly almost 50, 60 percent over the past 12 months. Now retail finds itself in a similar position. Take a look at some of these super low P.E.s and retail names like Macy's at five, Advanced Auto Parts at eight, Best Buy 12, Bath & Body at 13. But despite the opportunity for a bargain, our next guest is warning investors to stay away from the trade, and he liked the home builders. For more, let's bring in Chris Grisanti at MAI Capital Management. Chris, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Kelly. I, I'm, I'm here live from New York with the smoke behind me. So. It's wild. You're, it's like an orange-red glow. Yeah. yeah. Um, good. Hey. To, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, great comparison. As you know, I liked the home builders a year ago. But, but, and, and also, as you know, these uh, retailers really have rock bottom PE, so they are tempting. But I, I'd say there's a bunch of reasons now why you should be more careful with the retailers now than we were with the home builders back then. The, the, the biggest is, and this is kind of weird, but it's important, inflation is actually going down. And for most folks, that's a good thing. But for the retailers, it can be trouble. They're losing pricing power. Now, that's happening at the same time that volumes are actually starting to decline. They could, they made up for that six months ago by increasing prices, but they're having trouble, again, because inflation's going down. And, and one of the biggest reasons is we think there's a recession coming. We're obviously a year closer to whenever that starts than we were last year when we were buying the home builder. So, so you add up those things, and, and it, it makes me wary enough, you know, not to go in there. You know, kind of, uh, you know, yeah. we, fools go in where angels fear to tread, kind of. Thing. <laughs> so, why was it? Let's rewind the clock twelve months ago when we talked at sure. length about, you know, some of these home builders trading at two and a half, three, four times earnings. Why was it? Or, all right, two ways I'll ask this question. Number one, if you were you bearish back then or were you more bullish? And kind of part two yeah. is, well, if you're bearish on the economy now, would you kind of exit that trade? So just kind of compare sure. the, the macro with the setup for retailers. Right. So home building is a really weird industry. Yes. So what you have is you had mortgage rates going up a year ago. So the home builders naturally plunged. But what ends up happening, and this is the weird part, is that folks like you and me who own their homes, all of a sudden we think, we're not going to sell right now because if we go buy a new house, our mortgage is going to be double. So th those houses stay off the market. And the only homes coming onto the market are the home builders. So supply stays short, but the home builders have the only supply out there. And, and their business is actually surprisingly good. It's a really weird situation. 
Also, at the same time, lumber prices over the last year plunged. So those guys, the, the home builders, had enough money both with decent sales and with lumber pricing plunging that they can subsidize the, the entry mortgages for folks. So they can give it to them for under 5%. So that's a really unusual dynamic. And clearly, the retailers don't have that. Now, having said all that, Kelly, <laughs> you know, I am getting nervous about the home builders trade. As you saw, they're up 40, 50, and sometimes 60% in a year. And look, I don't think the economy is going to be better next year than this year. I think it's going to be worse. So, so you know, we are looking at that and we have taken some some money off the table. Right? Then are there any retailers who you do like and, you know, or sure. are, are there any super low valuation? You know, at some point, if it gets to two and a half, you know, some of these names, I think some of the department stores, a couple right. of beaten down mall retailers are approaching, you know, two or three times earnings. And so you wonder, you know, at some point there's got to be a margin of safety. Right. And, 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 and just like the home builders, we didn't go for the ones with the absolute lowest PE. Here, we want to go for retailers that have whose price has already fallen a lot, but they may not be like a 4PE, which and a 4PE in a retailer to me is kind of screaming, is there going to be solvency issues, stuff like that. So that makes me worry. But Dollar General, which just got the crap beaten out of it last week, uh, we think is really interesting here. This is a long-term story, mm. but Dollar General actually does better in a recession as folks start to trade down. It's trading at one of its lowest valuations in 10 years. And even though it's trading at 14 times, not four times, that's about as cheap as it ever gets. So that's something we're, we're uh, looking at real closely. I'm smiling because that does sound exactly like a, a strategic Chris Grisanti kind of move. All right, we'll leave it there. I don't know what was more informed, the, the stock picks or what's going on behind you. Um, I know, right? I better get... <laughs> Get a, I might have to sleep in my office tonight. Right, get, a, get that mask on. Chris, thanks right. so much. We really appreciate it today. Thanks, Kelly. Good Chris Grisanti with MAI. Still ahead amid higher rates and recession risk, what are the wealthy doing with their money? T-bills? Bitcoin? Robert Frank joins us with the results of CNBC's latest millionaire survey. And as we head to break, take a look. We just mentioned the FAA pausing some flights in and around the New York area thanks to that smoke from the Canadian wildfires. We just saw uh, behind Chris Grisanti. Here's another live shot of New York City and exactly what's happening there. Flights from the upper Midwest and the East Coast to LaGuardia are now paused. We'll talk to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb about these health risks, how to protect yourself. That's coming up in Power Lunch. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange. You know, they might be millionaires, but like most investors, they can't come to a consensus about where the market will go from here. But they are in agreement on two things, according to CNBC's latest survey, higher rates and a weaker economy. They really are like the rest of us. They are just like us with some extra zeros. And Kelly, the reason we do this survey is that millionaire investors own 85 percent of the individually held stocks. So their bets and their money moves can shape the markets. And right now, 38 percent of them say the market will be down this year. It's a lot better than the 69% read we got back in December. In fact, more of them, 40%, say the market's going to be up at least 5% this year. So they don't know. Now, they're still bearish on the economy and inflation. Most say the economy is going to be weaker or much weaker at the end of 2023. And when it comes to their investments, they're very defensive right now. Nearly two-thirds put more money into cash and fixed income over the past 12 months. Their short-term cash equivalents like money markets and CDs, that has nearly doubled from a year ago to now 24%. They've cooled a bit on crypto. Only 2% plan to add some crypto to their portfolios. But they're not worried about any fallout from the regional banking crisis. More than two-thirds say they're neutral or not concerned about their own deposits 
after that SVB and other banking failures. Only 6% actually moved money out of their banks during that period. Two-thirds, not surprisingly, support raising the FDIC limits. You can read more about our survey findings at cnbc.com slash millionaire survey. They support raising the FDIC limits. Yes. Okay, you know, put your cash somewhere yeah. else then. Yeah. I mean, what is the, the prevalence of, for instance, T-bills, things like that? Are they the ones draining everything out of the banks? And, you know, there, there were 20% of the move money out of stocks into short-term treasury bills. Wow. Because look, right now, as one investor told me, 5% return on risk-free cash equivalent is not just cash anymore. It's a strategy. Hmm. And it's an effective strategy as inflation is coming down. So it sounds simplistic to say, but even the most sophisticated investors right now like 5% risk-free return, even if it doesn't require much thought. I'm sorry I missed it, but what did you say about crypto and their appetite for that? Not much. Only okay. 2%. And that's very concentrated in millennial millionaires. Uh, they still love it. <laughs> Robert, thank you. Thank Robert you. Frank. Still ahead, as the used car market is showing signs of a slowdown, there's one name better positioned than the rest in that trade, according to BTIG. Here's the mystery chart. It's up 36% so far this year. The analyst reveals the name ahead and what makes it a standout. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've got more news on this heavy smoke uh, from the Canadian wildfires that's blowing into our area. The Biden administration is saying their team is in touch with the Canadian government as well as impacted state and local leaders. We also just got more from the FAA. Phil Lebeau is back with an update. What now, Phil? Kelly, I, we told you just a few minutes ago that they were pausing flights from the upper Midwest and East Coast into LaGuardia. Well, now they are pausing all flights into LaGuardia. Now, we should point out that the aircraft that are already in position and scheduled to take off, they are still leaving LaGuardia. But for now, they are pausing all flights into LaGuardia and they are slowing down flights into Newark, though departures continue for the aircraft that are in place at Newark. So clearly what you're seeing here is the FAA taking the steps to ease congestion even further, given the lack of visibility or limited visibility uh, in the New York area. Absolutely. And Phil, stick around as we want to talk about another story. Uh, used car prices are one of those sticky inflation stories that turn the market upside down. Uh, but they might be rolling over now by some metrics, although they remain elevated. The big online auto retailers have been snapping up inventory at better prices, according to a new study from BTIG. And these companies have been on a tear this year. Look at CarMax, CarGurus, Cars.com, all up 30 to 43 percent. Carvana, up more than 200 percent. My next guest found that one company consistently offered the highest value to customers looking to sell their car and says that might be a good thing both for consumers and for the stock. Joining me now is Marvin Fong, BTIG's analyst, alongside our own Phil LeBeau. Marvin, it's good to see you. What's the best place uh, to sell my used car? Yeah, according to, uh, first of all, thanks for having me, Kelly. Um, yeah, according to our study, we looked at uh, four of the largest platforms out there, including CarMax, Carvana. Uh, but the winner of our study was uh, a company called Cars.com. Uh, you know, they had the best offer uh, in our in our pricing study 52% of the time. And this actually follows uh, a, a good performance uh, in, in August of last year where we ran a similar study with the same set of cars and, and cars.com also came out the winner in that survey. So it, it looks like, you know, the best place uh, or the first place you should look to sell your cars is cars.com. Yeah, duly uh, but having noted. Said that, you should definitely shop around and, and look at all the different pricing engines out there. I would expect you to say, you know, good for consumers, not great for the company. They're overpaying for inventory and all the rest of it. But you're actually quite bullish on this company and think they benefit from this business model. 
Yeah, so different companies have different models, like a, like a Carvana or CarMax, you know, they're buying those cars for themselves. Uh, you know, cars.com is an intermediary, so they don't actually taking possession of these cars. You know, I have talked to the company and, and what they told me is, you know, they have backstop partners who have agreed to take the car, um, you know, to, and stand behind that price should the dealer decide, you know, that they, uh, you know, don't want the car, they can't sell it for the price that Cars.com said it's worth, they have backstop partners. So Cars.com itself is protected in that sense. Um, meanwhile, you know, they're, uh, you know, getting dealers to sign on for additional services. Uh, the AccuTrade uh, product is, a, is an add-on to the core subscription. Hmm. So it's a good thing for Cars.com. Only about 3% of their dealers right now have signed on to AccuTrade. Uh, which is the which is the name of the service. So we expect continued adoption by dealers because you know dealers are hungry for inventory. Yeah, great point, Phil. Where are we in, if I could call it, the used car price cycle? Uh, we are definitely seeing prices come down, Kelly. No doubt uh, that is uh, what we're seeing and we'll see probably over the next couple of months. New data came out today from Cox Automotive showing that the wholesale prices, and we should point out wholesale is when dealers through online auctions or in-person auctions are buying vehicles from each other. They then turn around and sell those vehicles to you and I and to other consumers. Wholesale prices down about 2.7% compared to April, down 7.6% compared to the same month a year ago and a big part of why this is happening kelly is that you are seeing more vehicles available for people to buy in the new market and the new market how much is available that really does drive pricing on the used market a lot more than people realize if there are more options out there on the new side people will will gravitate towards that not that they're going to ignore used but that really does have a huge impact on used pricing that's in marvin how does that play into whether i want to be an owner of any of these stocks over the next say 3 to 6 months yeah i mean you know all the automotive marketplaces sell both new and used it's true that used is under some more pressure because you know like phil is saying the prices are elevated the the traditional uh Price differential between a new car and a used car is unusually tight, meaning that uh, you know used cars are expensive relative to new cars. Um, so you might as well shop for a new car, especially if you've been kind of waiting for that inventory to come online and improve. Uh, what we like about the, the stocks that that we looked at, especially Cars.com, is that uh, you know they're pretty agnostic. You know, the dealer, a, a used car dealer or a franchise. Uh, a dealership is not going to cancel their subscription because, you know, sales are down 5% or 10%. In fact, in a tough sales environment, they need those services even more because they're driving, you know, the leads, the interested consumers that go to cars.com and then they send on, uh, you know, their, their expressions of interest on, uh, you know, so dealers need that, that foot traffic. They need those kind of pre-qualified uh, consumers. So they actually kind of stick with a cars.com even more when the sales environment gets tougher. Phil, I'll give you a quick last word. Uh, just what he was talking about here, it, it, it highlights, uh, Kelly, what we have long said, and everybody knows it's true. If you sell your car online or at a dealership, you're probably going to get a little bit less than if you were really persistent and you did it on your own and really worked at it. That's the price you pay for going through either an online auction site or through a dealership. And that's where they make their margins. So it's only it, it makes sense that whether it's cars.com or car gurus, Carvana, they are going to profit off of you selling your vehicle to them. All right. 
Gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Appreciate the deep dive into the used car uh, auto market today. Phil LeBeau and Martin, Marvin Frong from BTIG. That does it for us here on The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb will talk about these health risks associated with the smoke from the Canadian wildfires that's blowing across new, the New York area. Here's another look uh, at the broader region. You can barely see the buildings, and it's actually quite orangey in person. I'll join Tyler Matheson on the other side of this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.